0: Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, choir, for uh, leading us to the hills from where our help comes. Well, I have good news and bad news today. Would you like to hear it? (laughs) The good news is I saw Steve Hartman in the hall today. I don't know where he is, but blessings on you, Steve. There he is. Welcome. Welcome. If you're new, Steve was pastor here for a number of years, and he and Susie have moved to Denver. It's so good to see you. Thank you for being with us. Oh, and the bad news, I'm not baptizing my grandson today. Oh. So he came up with a stomach bug last night, and uh, he said he'd rather postpone it. (laughs) You know, the only silver lining in having no baptism is that I guess I have 10 extra minutes to preach. (laughs) I'm just going to put that page back in that I took out for the other services. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 2 today. Uh, Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, your word which is truth. We thank you for the foundation that is in the scriptures, the old and new covenants, The story of Israel, the story of Jesus, the story of the church, the people of God. So teach us, Lord, from your prophet Isaiah, this passage that leads us to the mountain. Teach us that we might grow close to you at the beginning of Advent. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. So a word about Isaiah. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet from the 8th century meaning he prophesied, wrote down these words, seven, 800 words before the time of Christ. So quite a, quite a bit of time. And he, he prophesied in a day when Assyria, from Nineveh, Assyria was the evil empire swallowing up nations. They swallowed up Syria. They swallowed up Israel, the northern kingdom. They did not get to swallow up. Judah and Jerusalem. And Isaiah is in the south. He's in Jerusalem writing these words. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. more. Come. Descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So it is the beginning of Advent. Advent is that season in the life of the church in which we prepare for Christmas. It's, It's not the same as Christmas, it's preparation for the birth of the Messiah. And so we look forward to Christ's second Advent when Christ will come again, and we look back in remembrance and celebration to his first advent. Jesus comes first as a servant, humble, laid in a manger, riding on a donkey, but he will come a second time to judge and to rule in glory. So we live in between those two advents. Sometimes we, we speak of the kingdom of God that Jesus came the first time to inaugurate the kingdom because he was the king. He said to his disciples, behold, the kingdom of God is among you because he was the king. But the kingdom has not come completely. It's not yet in full. There's still sorrow. There's still death. There's still pain. There's still warfare. And so we believe that the kingdom will come one day in full in all the pain and shadow Will be wiped away. So we live in between those two Advents, and in this season we think about both of them. We think back and we think forward. We are going to study as uh, God's people when we receive the sermons through the book of Isaiah this season. So, five metaphors that Isaiah uses in five different passages. We can have that slide about the Isaiah. Um, The mountain, the branch, the stream, the sign, and the light. Four Sundays of Advent and Christmas Eve. Three of these are, I'd say, pretty familiar Advent messianic passages. Next week, the branch. There will come a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's father. So the shoot is David. And then from that will come a branch. And the branch is the Messiah. And then the next line is the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. So, pretty obviously, Jesus the Messiah in the branch. The stream is a little more obscure. There will be streams of water in the desert, and the lame will walk, and the deaf will hear, and the blind will see. So, a a Messianic age passage, not so much uh, mention of the Messiah. Then on the 18th, the sign, this will be a sign to you, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. pretty obviously, Messianic. And then on... Christmas Eve, the light, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On those who lived in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Pretty obviously messianic. I get to preach the mountain, not so obviously messianic, (laughs) but you're going to watch, you're going to watch carefully and see where is the Messiah in this passage about a messianic age and a mountain. So I want you to think about mountains, picture maybe a mountain that was important to you on a trip or where you grew up. Uh, I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, the mountains there are not huge mountains. I'm going to show you a picture of uh, Mount Mitchell. Mount Mitchell is the highest mountain on the East Coast, east of the Rockies at 6,684 feet, respectable, but not a big mountain. This past weekend, uh, Pam and I were in State College, Pennsylvania, visiting my mom for Thanksgiving, and my mom said, oh, at the hotel where you're staying, if you open the window, every room looks out on Mount Nittany. And so I had to go look, and sure enough, it did. Mount Nittany couldn't be 2,000 feet. Maybe it's 1,000 feet. It's a hill. (laughs) But in State College, it's a mountain. (laughs) Yes, mom, I saw Mount Nittany, 2,000 feet. My brother who was with us is from Oregon, and when he looks out his window at home, he sees this, and that's impressive. Mount Hood, the tallest mountain in Oregon, 11,231 feet. I'm going to forget these tomorrow, but today I know them. (laughs) Tallest mountain in Oregon. But even Mount Hood at 11,000 feet and the other mountains in the Cascades are dwarfed by the tallest mountain in the world, If you go all the way to Asia and go to Nepal, I've not seen this myself, but Mount Everest is 29,000 feet tall. That's a mountain. And I show you these because in this passage, the prophecy is that the mountain of the Lord's house will become the tallest of the mountains. So it's important for Isaiah to help us think about mountains and why they're important. So here are three questions I want to ask today. Number one what's the meaning of this mountain metaphor that Isaiah use, uses? Why is he talking about mountains? And two, these peoples are nations that stream to the mountain. Who are they? And number three, why do they go to the mountain? What are they going to get from reaching the mountain? What does a mountain offer to those who approach it? So first question, what, what's the meaning of this image or metaphor mountain? And it's pretty simple. In the Bible, in biblical narratives, the mountain is the place of revelation. It's the place for teaching. So you go to the mountain to hear from God. Let me just give you some examples. You remember Moses meets God at the burning bush, the bush that burned but was not consumed, and a voice spoke, said, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. And then God speaks through the burning bush, and tells Moses, you're going to lead your people out of Egypt. Remember that? Mount Horeb, burning bush on a mountain, God reveals himself. And the most important thing God says in that encounter is when Moses asks a question. and He says, well, excuse me, but when I go tell the people that I'm leading them out of Egypt, who shall I say sends me? Like, who are you? And you remember what God says? I am who I am. I'm the one who exists. I'm the one who is and was and will be. He reveals his name to Moses on the mountain. And then later in the story, they get out of Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness. And then, remember, Moses ascends another mountain, Mount Sinai, and there he gets the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of stone. And remember, he gets fed up with the Israelites and breaks and has to go back and do it a second time. And if you read the account, uh, the mountain is a scary place. Only Moses and his buddies can go up it, and the other people have to stay off the mountain, and there's smoke, and there's lightning. By the way, there's an interesting commentary on the Ten Commandments by Joy Davidman. you know that name? C.S. Lewis's wife called "Smoke on the Mountain." Smoke on the Mountain." So, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, God reveals himself, turn over to the New Testament, Jesus is teaching, Matthew is recording it, and he said, Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. So, the mountain is a place where God teaches, God speaks, God reveals himself. Now, the reference here is the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. That's talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem or Zion is another name for Jerusalem, and the temple is in Jerusalem. It's actually not very high, but the prophecy is that it will be raised up, kind of a symbol of being a place of revelation, the highest place of worship. There's a prophecy in Ezekiel 40 you might want to look at. So the mountain is a place of revelation, and revelation is important because there are things in life that we can't know that God has to teach us. We can't figure it out. We can't discover it. God has to show us revelation. For instance, purpose. How can you know the purpose of something unless the purpose maker tells you? For example, you're walking down the street in Richmond, and you see a bunch of workmen and bricks and a cement mixer, and they're obviously laying a foundation, and it looks like a building that's going to go up, and you think it's what kind of building? You don't know. Is it an apartment building? is it a bank? Is it a church? How are you going to find out what the building is? You ask the workmen; they say, well, we don't know. So you could wait around until the building is done and say, okay, now I know what it is. Or you could find the architect or the builder who has designed the mountain, I mean the building, and say, what's this going to be? What's the purpose of this building? Now we look at the creation and how do we know what's the purpose of this creation, the cosmos? Earth, Mars, the planets, people, different… What's the purpose of all this? Well, we'd have to consult the Creator or wait around to the end of time and see how it turns out. So, there are things that God has to disclose to us. He has to reveal to us. And the mountain is the place where God tells us who He is, what He's doing, and what He expects from us. And it's the highest mountain… What's the purpose or the meaning of that? In Jewish thought, it's pretty simple. The highest mountain is is the place of true wisdom. It's the one God is speaking from the highest mountain. Remember how God says, don't have any other gods before me, don't have any idols. Even we say this about Jesus, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is a sense in which Judaism and Christianity are examples of particularism. This is the faith, this is the truth, and there's none other. Now, I don't know, are you you ever embarrassed about that? Do you ever feel like that's kind of arrogant for us to say, our way is the true way and all the other ways are the false way? Sometimes people can be beleaguered and besieged. I had a, not a friend, but a person I studied, David Bosch, who was a missiologist in South Africa, and he said, here's what you want to try to have in your witness as Christians who believe in the God of the Bible, who believe that God is represented by the highest mountain, and he's the only living God. You want to have boldness to declare that and humility to carry it without arrogance. Does that make sense? Boldness in the gospel, humility about yourself. Because you and I have comprehended God's truth only so much. And you and I have lived out God's righteousness only so much. So we should be humble about ourselves, but we can still be confident about the gospel and about the Bible. Leslie Newbegin, another missions guy, wrote a book called Proper Confidence. Confidence in the gospel, humility about myself. This is a day and age in which relativism is sometimes pretty popular. We need to have that confidence, but we need to hold it with humility. All right, the second question, who's going to the mountain? Who is this group of people on pilgrimage? And Isaiah says, all the nations shall stream to it. Many people will come and say. This is maybe the surprising bit in Isaiah's prophecy. Here's an Old Testament picture where the nations are coming to God on the mountain. Not just Israel, but all the nations. Now, how can he say that? Well, here and there in the Old Testament, there are hints of what is to come. This is a a picture of in the days to come. This is a picture of the end, an eschatological picture of how God is going to wrap up history. And in God's special time, other nations are going to come to the God of Israel. Do you remember the promise God made to Abraham, Genesis 12? Abraham, I will make a covenant with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will make your name great. I will give you a land. I will give you descendants. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And in you or through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations on earth. God's purpose statement, you wouldn't know it unless God revealed it to you, that God actually cares about every nation, not just Israel. And he says it in the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, where Jesus gives a great commission and says, go and make disciples of all nations. That commission is in Genesis 12, blessing to all the people through Abraham. And then you fast forward to the end of the Bible, and you come to the book of Revelation chapter 7, and John has his vision, and he says, behold, I saw a great multitude from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people standing around the throne worshiping the Lamb. There's the picture where representatives from every, not modern political nation, but nation meaning ethnic people group, will be part of the worshiping throng. You see, you and I live in between those two. We li- live in between the Abrahamic covenant promise and the vision that John gets about the end of time in the book of Revelation. And here's another picture. In Isaiah, 800 years before Christ, where Isaiah says, hey, there's a day when all the nations are going to come to God, the God of Israel, not just the Jewish people. You ever heard this little line from John Piper? It's a Baptist preacher. Is it okay to quote a Baptist preacher? <laughs> Mission exists because worship does not. You ever heard that? Mission exists because worship doesn't. God desires that all peoples acknowledge him as the living God and worship him, And we do mission to invite other people to become worshipers. Not to scare them, not to bribe them, but to invite them to worship the one true and living God. And friends, it's actually happening. The nations are coming to God all over the world. There are now more Christians in the non-Western world than in the Western world. About 60-40. We're 40%. The non-Western world is 60%. There are Christ movements in the Islamic world, in the Hindu world, and I hope we're on the verge of it in the Buddhist world as well. A few weeks ago you heard Sasan, October 30th, preaching here about Iran and saying that there have been more Christians coming from Islamic peoples in the last 14 years than in the previous 1400. That's true. I've met some of them. And there's a movement in northern India where village after village are coming to Christ. So the nations are starting to come, not to Jerusalem, but to come to the Messiah who sits on the throne in Jerusalem. What about the third question? When these pilgrims come to the mountain, what what do they find? What do they get? Well, first it says that they're coming for instruction, doesn't it? He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The word of the law will go out to them. People need to be instructed. They need revelation. They need to know who God is, what God does for us, what God expects of us. And then there are these passages about peace. He will judge between the nations, settle disputes, swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. It's a word about restoration, isn't it? That where people are at each other's throats, there will be peace. Do we need that today in the world? Have you read about Yemen lately, the Civil War? Have you heard about Mosul in Iraq? What about Aleppo in Syria? And those are just three places that I pray for every day, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, that are just gripped by warfare. When people are afraid of bombs, it's hard to go to sleep, it's hard to eat, it's hard to care for your children. It's hard to teach them lessons. But God says one day when the peoples come, I will teach them my ways and I'll clear away everything that makes life stressful and painful and difficult. There will be war no more. It's a picture of of shalom, isn't it? You know shalom, the Hebrew word for peace? It means more than cessation of violence. It means food and drink shelter and flourishing for all people. That's what God promises. And, you know, that's what the peoples of the world want. They want what we want. They want not to be afraid. They want to be free. They want to have food and drink. When I was in India a year ago, we went to all these villages, and sometimes we would speak, but often we would just hear people speak and meet folks and see the little church emerging in this village and that village. And at the end of our time, one of our Indian hosts, would stand up and say in Hindi, is there anybody here that's not well? Is there anybody sick? Does anybody have pain? Would you like to come forward and we will pray for you? And we rolled up our sleeves and we prayed in English. I couldn't pray in Hindi. But they knew that these Christian people who were visiting the village believed in prayer and that God answered prayer or they were willing to take the chance. And they just streamed up for prayer. Every village, every situation. And sometimes our host would say, okay, time to go to the next village. And I would think, there's still people in line who answered the call to prayer and want to be prayed for. People around the world are hungry for the same things we are. And our privilege is to point them to the mountain where God is where God not only gives benefits, but God gives himself. You know, Christianity is the only religion where you can have a relationship with God. We call it a covenant. God made a covenant with Israel, makes a covenant with the church through a mediator to have a relationship. Nobody else offers a God who is not only mighty, but a God who cares. A God who cares so much he sent his son to become one of us. So people are coming to the mountain for all that God has to offer. Now, do you remember when I I said in the beginning about all these Isaiah passages, look for the Messiah? Have Have you seen the Messiah hiding in this passage about the mountain? Here's where I see him. If you were to go to Mount Everest today and you wanted to climb to the summit, could you do it by yourself? No way. You would need an outfitter, and you would need a guide, and you would need oxygen, and mainly you would need a what kind of guide? A Sherpa guide. You all know the name, don't you? The Sherpas are the world-famous local indigenous expert mountaineering guides. Their name means Sherpa, means people of the east, and for hundreds of years they have climbed the mountain. And you need a Sherpa guide if you're going to go up Mount Everest. What about if you're going to go to the mountain of the Lord and you want to meet God the Father? You need someone to be your intercessor, someone to be your advocate, someone who knows the Father. No one knows the Father like the Son. Jesus is the only advocate, only intercessor, and he lives to intercede for people. So I see the Messiah in this passage. He's the Sherpa guide leading people to the mountain. I was in um, the Middle East recently on the Arabian Peninsula, and we met an Anglican pastor who'd been there 10 years and who knew the royal family. And he said to us, he said, you know that passage in John 14 where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know that passage? We usually say it at every funeral. In my Father's house are many mansions. And then it ends, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Andy, as the name said, you know, in the West, we focus on the I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But in the East, here on the Arabian Peninsula, what we hear is no one comes to the Father but through me. Let me tell you a story. Let's suppose, as I did recently, want to get permission to expand our church. All the churches in his city are on a church compound And if you want to expand or renovate, you have to get permission from the sheikh. He said, what I would do is I would petition the ruler, Sheikh Khalifa, and I would send a letter to the Office of Cultural Affairs, who, if he liked it, would bump it up to the Minister of Culture, Youth, and Community Development. And if he liked it, he would take it to one of the advisors of the emir, and maybe it would get all the way to the top, I would hope. But then he said, I thought, you know, my son is in school with the Sheikh's son. And the Sheikh's son invited him to a birthday party next week. I'm going to take him to that birthday party and I'm going to linger at the door and maybe he'll invite me in and maybe I will get to talk to the Sheikh face to face because my son knows his son. Do you see it? The son has access to the father. When you think about Jesus, I don't know what box... You think of first, Savior, Lord, Good Shepherd, the Word, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. There are lots of different titles and boxes we have for Jesus. Jesus is the one that gives us access to the Father. When we get to another Isaiah passage, we'll come to that phrase, Holy Counselor, Wonderful God, Holy Counselor, Mighty God. Wonderful counselor, wonderful counselor. (laughs) The word counselor means the one who's called alongside. Jesus comes alongside and opens the door so we can meet the Father. This Advent, I pray that you and I will have a longing to know the Father and the Son in a deeper way. And that we'll see how the Messiah was sent to do that open the door. Ephesians puts it this way. He is the Prince of Peace, and he has come to, pre- to proclaim priests to those who are far off, the Gentiles, and those who are near. Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Hebrews puts it this way. He is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. As you pray for those who need to meet Jesus to get to the Father, don't forget that that's your privilege as well. When Isaiah wrote this, he ended with this line, Oh, descendants of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's almost as if he said, hey, here's a picture of tomorrow when all the nations are going to come to God and have access. But Israel, are, are you going to keep coming? Are are you going to be pilgrims too? Or are you sitting on the sidelines? Are you distracted? Have you given up that privilege? If you read Isaiah 1 and 2 and go on, Isaiah goes back and forth. He, He says to the Israelites, give up your idols, repent, and turn back to God. And then he says a word about grace and hope, like this passage. But it's almost as if he's provoking the Israelites to jealousy. And I would say the same to the church today. Let's not be complacent. Let's not take our privileges for granted. And as Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists come to Christ, let's be in the pilgrimage. Let's be in the party. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have so many privileges. Help us not to take them for granted, but to be part of the number, to be part of your glorious church that's going to include every tribe, every nation, every people, and every tongue. Glory to you, O Lord. Amen.